As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at Walk in Love from 1 Corinthians 13, quite a well-known passage. I want you to think about this. Do you know how long you have to get out of your house when there's a fire? How many minutes do you think you have? Used to be over about 10 minutes. Currently, because of uh, the things in our homes and how our homes are built, you have three to four minutes. That's it. Three to four minutes. And the most common reason the homes catch on fire is unattended kitchens, things on the stove, things in the burner. Hey, leave it unattended. Boils over. The grease gets too hot. Begins catches fire. Catches fire. Something else close. You know, within about thirty seconds. Small kitchen fire can turn into a larger kitchen fire. Within two minutes, the temperature goes to about 400 degrees, and you get it catches up fire on other things that are close by cabinets, or countertops, or towels. Smoke begins billowing because it's burning poisonous stuff that was never meant to be burned. Within, within three minutes, you've got very hot gases, poisonous gases. And at 400 degrees Fahrenheit, things are beginning to auto-ignite. At the four-minute mark, flames are hitting your ceiling and not only running vertically, but running horizontally. If you've got a second-story uh, home, they're leaping up and going upstairs. By five minutes, the home could be in what they call decay stage. Too far gone to save. You're talking about 1,400 degree temperatures. And if you try to put out the fire the wrong way, that small little fire, small little grease fire, throw some water on it, you know you do what? Just make it worse. You just spread it. This is Reality. I didn't make those numbers up. You can go look at them uh, online if you want. That's reality. Interpersonal conflicts are like house fires. You don't have long to react or long to put them out before they cause immense damage. And if you don't react quick enough, that relationship is burned to the ground. And yes, it can be rebuilt, but you have to do the hard work of cleanup and in the hard work of rebuilding that could all be avoided if we would react quick enough in the right way. And so this morning I want us to see from 1 Corinthians 13 that when facing conflict, you must exercise a love that radically and voluntarily acts for the good of the other person so that you glorify God and, and Jesus, your Lord, you become more like him and, and you pour cold water on what could be an explosive situation. Or to use the right analogy, you say you, you use the right type of extinguisher for the right type of fire. And love is the right type of extinguisher for conflicts. Now, what I'm going to say this morning is not original. And much of what, what I'm going to say comes from Alexander Strzok's book if you bite and devour one another. So I'll say that at the outset. 
but it flows from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. And, and when we encounter f- conflict, the last thing that we want to do, our flesh wants to do anyway, is to love the other person. Right? It's totally contrary to our flesh. It's contrary to our, our fallen nature, if you will. It's very natural to want to respond in the flesh. It's unnatural to respond in love. Where in the Bible would you turn to learn about love? Well, there, there are multiple passages we could turn to. We could look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he lived his life in perfect love. But one of the passages that we must grip, grip, uh, deal with is 1 Corinthians 13. And if someone asked you, you know, well, if there's a good Bible, if there's a good passage to understand love, that's a, it's a good passage to turn to. It's concise. And it's very relevant, very practical. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a, is a chapter, a set of verses on love that are often referenced at weddings. Or uh, you might uh, remind yourself, you and your wife might remind yourself of, of, the, of the commitments of love. And so it's often referred to as like a, a verses in that kind of context. So a wedding, um, marital love, maybe a close friendship type of love, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a great way to apply those things. But what I want us to see today is that that's not what Paul intended. It's not that that's a, not a right application. It is a right application. It's a legitimate application of 1 Corinthians 13. But 1 Corinthians 13 was written to deal with conflict. Did you know that? It was written to a church in conflict. And it was written to help the church extinguish the conflicts within that local congregation. Paul wrote the description of love in order to help the church resolve the conflicts that were already going on. And just to do a little sampling of this, you can listen or follow along. I'm just going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Corinthians uh, before we get to chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses, verses 10 to 12. There Paul says, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now we don't know who Chloe's people are, but, but Chloe sent some people to go tell the Apostle Paul that there was major conflict going on, and so Paul, in part, writes to, to, to help them with that. But it's not just one verse. First Corinthians 3, 3. Paul describes the Corinthian church as he says, you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Uh, by that mere men, he, he means are you not walking in the flesh? You're not walking as regenerate men. You're working at, walking uh, as unregenerate men. Look at, uh, if you would, First Corinthians 6. Again, you can listen or, or look along them. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, read verses 1 to 8. Do, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges? who are of no account in the church, I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you 
one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Then in chapter 8, verse verse 7, kind of jumping in, there was conflicts over how liberty was used. Verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol, until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining at an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And then 1 Corinthians 11, verses seven, beginning at verse 17, Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. They weren't coming together to, to be united in Christ or to demonstrate their unity in Christ. They were coming together and then demonstrating conflict, disunity, selfishness, independence. He says, for, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. And, and, and Paul deals with that, and, and it flows into the passage that we regularly read on Communion Sunday. So guess what? Communion Sunday... Communion is an institution that God gave us, is a practice that God gave us to help deal with what? Disunity in the church. You know, communion is, is there not just to help you uh, just have short accounts with, your, with God and your own personal sins and the things you struggle with, but communion is also there to help us as a church to maintain unity. That's, that's kind of the context of, of that passage. And then look at chapter 12. He is, he is dealing with the use of spiritual gifts. And there's a lot of contention with that. There, was a lot of, there were people within the Corinthian church who were envious of other people's gifts. And they were contending with one another over who had the greatest gift. And in, in verse 23, Paul says, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. That's the lead-in to 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And then in the first four verses, uh, first three verses, I should say, he, he kind of corrects the Corinthians and saying, all those showy gifts are nothing if you don't have love. And I'll just read that. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging sim- symbol. Right? If you want a good illustration of what that's like, go home, find an old pot you don't care about, Get a wood spoon, right, and rasp them together very, very quickly, very loudly, right, and walk around the house like that and see how long you can tolerate that. Not very long. So kids only do that if your mom gives you the used pot because it may ruin the pot. But you understand that's what Paul's saying. That clanging symbol. 
you you just hate it. You know, when you read the word symbol, don't think about like a symbol in a symphony. It's not that nice sounding at all. This is a really obnoxious, loud, clanging sound in your house. You do not like it. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, that is, he dies as a martyr, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Big, fat, zero. Nothing. Now, we need to love at all times, because God's called us to that. But the context is that of a church in conflict, it's fleshly deed, needs of the flesh going on, there's selfishness, there's envy, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And Paul like puts a laser beam on the issue and says, the biggest problem here is love. He deals with other issues within within the within the, the letter. So this isn't the only thing, but this is the major thing. Like walking in the spirit that he dealt with in the Galatians. You know, if you were just to take what we talked about last week about walking in the spirit and apply that to your conflict, your conflicts would immediately improve. Even if you couldn't resolve it because the other person wasn't willing to resolve it, it would immediately improve because of how you're responding. You're walking in the spirit. And, and today is like that. Right? There are other things that we can do, but if all you do is learn to love the person you're in conflict with, it'll immediately improve. Even if, again, if the person in conflict doesn't want to resolve it, you can only resolve it so far. But your attitude going through it will greatly improve and you'll have joy even in the midst of that, even through the midst of a difficult conflict if you will just learn to apply these principles in the spirit. You know, Paul was a tireless defender of truth. I mean, no one would say that, that Paul was soft on truth. I mean, he taught truth. But at the same time, he's also the apostle that speaks the most about love. He talks both about truth and love in, in all of his letters. These things are not to be separated. So as you hold to truth, hold to love. As you hold to love, hold to truth. Right? Our world wants to separate these things, especially right now, because they redefine love. But they say, if you love me, you'll accept me as I am. No, because I love you, I'm going to hold on to the truth and tell you truth. And, and we have to do that in, as we're trying to handle conflict in a biblical way. We need the truth, but we also need love. You do not have to sacrifice truth to love. And you do not have to sacrifice love to hold the truth. So the fact that Paul was teaching this to a church in the midst of conflict should be an encouragement to us that these things are designed to help us with our conflicts, help us to handle them in a way that honors the Lord and helps our families and helps our churches um, to, to grow in Christ. Well, Paul writes to the Corinthians about the indispensable uh, practice of love, to love in all they say and do. But Paul was writing to a church in conflict, and you and I must understand the, that message in, in that context. Let's read together verses 4 to 7, Paul's descriptions of love. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant. 
Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And Paul says in verse 8, love never fails. Love never fails. And then if you look at verse 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. We need to love. And when facing conflict, you must walk in love so that you are patient, which is the, the first characteristic of love. In this life, we're going to suffer many hurts and injustices, sometimes even from friends or relatives. And if that's true in a biological sense, it's certainly true in the family of God. You are going to experience hurts. You are going to experience injustices. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. We must be prepared to when we encounter these things so we, that we know what we must do. And the first thing you must do is ask the Lord's help to be patient. Now, one of the things I want to point out to is, is that the, most, the way that most English translations translate this it gives you the it gives you the um, a, the impression that love are these qualities and and they're almost sometimes a little abstract. Um, if I were to tell you to define uh, patience, you you would probably be, have an easier time to demonstrate it or to explain it from an example than you would actually define it. But the way that Paul writes these. They're all verbs. They're all actions. They're not just like abstract qualities that, oh yeah, I got that part of my life and that part of my life. And this is, these are things that you do, right? Which really fits into how God explains agape love. Right? Agape love is an active love. It's an action. It's doing uh, actions for the good of the other person, even if it costs you something. And especially when it costs you something. So, Christian, when you are wronged, when you are hurt, when you are offended, you are to be patient. That's a quality of love. Now, patience can be translated as long-suffering or forbearance. Right? Just to break it down. Long-suffering. Not difficult, right? Suffer long. What? You want me to suffer, Lord? Well, in this sense, yes, he does. Right? He wants you to put up with other people. He wants you to be patient as he is patient. Uh, one dictionary defines the act of patience as this, to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others, to be mild and slow in avenging, to be long-suffering, to slow to anger, slow to punish. Another dictionary notes this, that patience is an outward-looking spiritual quality that prepares us to meet others with a generous and self-giving frame of mind. Let me read that together again. It is an outward-looking spiritual quality that prepares us to meet others with a generous and self-giving frame of mind. And thus human patience or forbearance in this sense is not, it's not an abstract trait, but a way of life. Think about patience as a way of life. When we patiently endure injuries or wrongs suffered in the midst of conflict, 
we demonstrate this tenacious quality of love. In, in contrast, crying over every hurt or slight is often an expression of self-centeredness and self-pity. So we must grow thick skin in love so that we don't have to react to every offense. In fact, you do react, but you react in love. You're reacting in, in a sense where you're just being patient. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 inform us that one of the chief ways to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that is, unity within the church, is by bearing with one another in love. Right? Bearing with one another in love. That little preposition, in love, is very important. And, and one commentator highlights that if we bear with one another in any other manner, then our forbearance could resort to, could become resentment or anger. It's just kind of like building up within us. But when we bear with one another in love, then that resentment isn't building up. So when somebody offends you and you start, you start kind of feel the anger inside you mounting, right? that's something we're all very familiar with. Right? The resentment mounts. That's not love. That's not being patient. Being patient suppresses that anger, pushes it down, right? Because that's what our Lord wants us to do. Whereas impatience focuses on self and impatient exasperates the problem, makes the problem worse. Uh, but patience, forbearance, deals with people carefully. And it's like a fire retardant or a fire suppressor. Right? It helps put down the conflict. It helps calm the situation. allows you to think carefully and react um, very um, strategically. And the fact that this patience, this, this, this practice that helps us to cover a multitude of sins, as 1 Peter 4.8 says. We'll come back to that. But 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. So we're tempted to be patient with others. We should stop and think for a moment about the gracious long-suffering of our Lord. Almost every time I'm impatient, especially with my children, the Lord reminds me instantly, now, Mark, am I that way with you? Now, I don't hear a voice. Clear. Right? But this spirit within me convicts me. And he says, am I that way with you? And instantly I know, oh, no, no. Heavenly Father, you're not that way with us. How dare I be that way with my children? The way I need to respond how the, our Father responds to us. So look at his example for inspiration and help. Paul reminds us in, in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we are to put on patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also you should you. Right? So there's that example. And he just kind of throws the door wide open. And he says, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Okay? So there's no limits on this to our patience. God wants us to be patient. That, that's the first kind of fire retardant, if you will, in a, in a conflict is patience. Okay? Secondly, when facing a conflict, you must walk in love so that you're kind. Okay? Again, there's, there's like 15 attributes of love in this whole thing. But if, but if you miss all of them, don't miss 
Don't miss patience. Don't miss kindness. If you just get those two, you will radically change your conflicts for the glory of God, the good of your family, the good of the church. I don't want to show of hands, but but how many of you have witnessed contentious church business meetings right, where, number one, there was no patience or impatience, and then there was no kindness. In fact, very hurtful things were said. So again, those, these two things alone would radically change our families and our church and how we act with one another when we are offended or hurt by one another. Instead of being overcome by evil, which is kind of the natural fleshly way, we are to overcome evil with good. Um, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome evil with good. You're not going to do, be able to do it on your own. You need the Holy Spirit's help and you need his strength. We, we are to respond to the evils done to us uh, by the brethren. Sometimes they're accidental and other times they're not. But we need to respond to those evils with kindness. With kindness. Now, as with patience, Paul uses the verb form of kindness. Again, it's not, an ab- it's not an abstract quality. This is a practice of life. So kindness is manifested in actions. Patience is manifested in actions. Right? And such is the state of mind. To be kind, a believer must depend upon the Spirit and accept kindness as a biblical command. It's God's mandate and it's what the Holy Spirit will help produce in your life because He is the one that wants you to respond that way. To be kind. Um, the, the kindness uh, means to provide something beneficial to someone. Right? To provide something beneficial. Somebody offends you, how do you apply kindness? Look to do something beneficial for them. And you're like, wow, that's that's radical. Because I usually look for like ways to get back at them. I mean, that's that's the fleshly mindset, is it not? But God says, no, look for ways to be kind. Look for ways to be kind. And and you and I will will do well to remember our Lord's kindness. If you, if you would turn to Luke chapter six, because it's important that we see this in our own Savior, our own God. He's not commanding something He hasn't done. So Luke six. Look at verse 27. And we'll just read from verse 27 to verse 36. Jesus says, But I say to you, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Doing good is very very similar. You can say a synonym to kindness. What we're talking about now. When When you do kind acts, you are good to them. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other side, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So apply that. It's, it's easy to be kind when people are kind to you. You manifest a spirit when you're kind to someone who mistreats you. That's when you demonstrate Christ-like character. Anybody can be kind to someone who's been kind to them. That's what the Lord is saying. Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. 
but love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself, look, he himself is what? Kind. To whom? Those who deserve it? Kind to, see it? Ungrateful and evil men. Our Lord is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. A similar phrase, you know, be holy, for I am holy. Here, here Jesus is saying, be merciful, for your Father is merciful. He desires to produce these qualities in our lives. He has the power to bring them about through the placement of the Holy Spirit in your life. Think about what a radical transformation conflicts would take if we would be kind. Even when people are ungrateful, even when people are evil, to be kind. Now, primarily I want us to apply this in the context within our families, your biological families, but also the family of the church. There, there are obviously times when if you have someone who's trying to uh, kill you, that's not the apply. That's not the time to apply this and allow them to say, "Oh yeah, I'll be kind and let you have your way." Right? That's not what this is saying. So don't misinterpret that. Right? So there are certainly times when um, you need to take a, a different strategy, flee, for example, that kind of situation. Right? But what, what I'm addressing is the everyday average. Like conflicts, verbal conflicts, the jousts, unkind words, the cold shoulders. Be kind. Be kind. That, that's what the Lord intends for us. And we will do well to remember the kindness of our Lord and our God who abundantly poured out that kindness upon us. Just like we did when we talked about patience. You look at God's patience to help you be patient. You look at his kindness to help you be kind. Romans uh, 2.4 says, there Paul says, uh, he, he asks this penetrating question to those in conflict. In this case, the, the context is one person judging another person. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. And then Titus 4, uh, sorry, verse, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 tell us this. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's God's kindness, yes, his love, but his kindness is an attribute of love that saved us, redeemed us. He came and died for us in order to draw us to himself. One commentator noted that kindness is an unmistakable and essential characteristic of love, as well as one of the chief manifestations of the Spirit's work in a believer. You can be kind. You'll have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. You will need to pray for the Spirit's help, and you will need to set your path to be obedient to that, but you can do it. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in the flesh, but you can do it in the spirit. God, God commands it, and he will help produce the fruit from it to do that. 
Ephesians 4, verses 31 to 32, tell us to let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and anger be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. So as believers, we are, we are called to win people with kindness. We are called to extinguish conflict by, con, by kindness. As, with sincerity of heart, we are to, to bless those who abuse us by doing good deeds to their benefit. How do you do that in, in good conscience? How do you do that with sincerity of heart? You pray and say, God, I don't want to do this, but I know that it's the right thing to do, so help me to do it and set your path to do it. Do not wait till you feel like doing it because you will never feel like doing it right, until you're perfected in heaven. Right? But you set your path to do what is right in the Lord's strength. There's a good example of this. Uh, Thomas Cramner was a, a leader in the English Reformation in the 1500s. And the other Reformation was a very hostile and violent time. He responded with kindness to those who oppressed him. And it is said of him, I quote, to do him to do him any wrong was to beget a kindness from him. To do him any wrong was to beget a kindness from him. Did you want a kindness from Thomas Cramner? Right? Try and insult him. He'll return kindness. He will not. He will not respond in the flesh. Now, I'm saying he's perfect, but 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 that is what is quoted of historians of him. That even in the heat of the Reformation, he purposed to respond in the Spirit by exercising kindness. If you would like others to treat you with patience and kindness when engaged in a relational conflict, then you must purpose to treat those who disagree with you with patience and kindness. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7, verse 12. He says, therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them. For this is the law of the prophets. In other words, it's summing all things up in love. You know, the greatest commandment, love your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So patience, kindness, these things are love. That's what God would have you to do. You want these things, so set your heart to do them for others. Thirdly, when face, facing conflict, you must walk in love so that you are not jealous. The next characteristic. It's kind of interesting that Paul gives us two positive characteristics, two positive actions, and then he begins a list of negative actions, meaning love is the absence of these things. So love is the absence of jealousy. Paul lists these eight negative traits, and he begins with jealousy, and, and jealousy is, uh, or you could say envy, some, some Bible translations use the word envy. It, this is a sinful behavior, you know, there are contexts where the word envy is a, is a positive thing. So God's, God's envy is, is, a, is a good thing. And, um, jealousy can be a, a good thing in, in certain contexts, like God's jealousy for us to, to worship him with one heart, one mind, one, one strength, with everything that we have. But the context here says that this, this kind of jealousy, this kind of envy is on the negative side. To entertain jealous, uh, jealous thoughts leads to jealous behavior and jealous behavior just is like throwing gasoline on a fire. It's like that, that, that kitchen fire, right? Instead of getting the right kind of extinguisher and putting it out, you're actually throwing more fuel on the fire with jealousy. Envy, 
Jealousy swelled in Satan's heart to rebel against God. Uh, Envy caused Cain to kill Abel. Envy motivated the Jewish leaders to plot and carry out the murder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Envy motivated the Jewish leaders to to arrest, beat, and and threaten Peter and John and, and countless others after them. You know, jealousy filled the hearts of the Jews in almost every city that Paul went to, and they persecuted him for that. So so that's what I'm talking about. Jealousy is just throwing fire onto a conflict. It's throwing fuel onto a conflict, rightly stated. And John MacArthur rightly notes that jealousy or envy has two forms, he says. One form says, I want what someone else has. If they have a better car than we do, we want it. If they are praised for something they do, we want the same or more for ourselves. And that sort of jealousy is is bad. But there's another kind of jealousy, he says. A worst kind. The worst kind says, I wish they didn't have what they have. The second sort of jealousy is, it's more than just selfish. It's desiring evil for someone else. It is jealousy on the deepest, most corrupt and destructive ways. Someone gets that promotion. Instead of just saying, oh, I would like to have that promotion, you say, oh, I wish they wouldn't have got that. They got some kind of something that you want, but you you kind of wish evil upon them for having gotten that. Jealousy is often associated with strife in the scriptures, and we won't take time to look at them. But but where you see jealousy, strife is not far behind. They're they're often united, and jealousy is a deed of the flesh that is contrary to the work of the spirit. Galatians five tells us that. So wise and godly man once concluded, he, he concluded this, a loving person is never jealous. He is glad for the success of others, even if their success works against his own. Even when somebody is outshining you, love is not jealous. Recognize that God's sovereignty is meticulous. So I was reading a recent book talking about the, God's sovereignty and salvation. And I, I, he, the theologian used that word meticulous, and I think it's good. And you're going to hear it a lot from me because I think we need to be reminded of it. God's sovereignty is meticulous. If you remember that, it'll help you avoid jealousy. They have, the other person has what they have by God's gracious gift. Even if they're an unbeliever, they've been given that by God's gracious gift. And it'll help stymie kind of the envy and jealousy that can rise up in a conflict, and all of a sudden it just embroiled, and that little little fire that could be easily contained is now a raging kitchen fire, soon getting ready to burn the house down. Next, look at the next negative characteristic. When facing conflict, you must walk in love so they don't brag and are not puffed up. So again, there's more to this than just dealing with conflict, but that's one of the primary applications that Paul wants us to see. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. And, and we're, I'm bringing these two characteristics together because, because they are very similar and they flow from one to another. The loving person doesn't brag. That, that means they don't praise themselves excessively. Notice that this word is placed strategically between jealous, not being jealous, and not being puffed up. Right? There's a connection here. Jealousy, bragging, puffed up. These things flow together. And, and one commentator noted that this the placement of this word of, of bragging uh, shows us that Paul is speaking about the, the 
defiant conduct and that of kind of an unbounded arrogance. You may not think of yourself as arrogant, but when we are bragging, when we are puffed up, we are being arrogant. We are defying the work of the Spirit in our lives. And when the, when the heart of a man is jealous of others, it leads him not only to brag about himself, but to be puffed up. And usually what also happens is you beat the other person down. Right? You puff yourself up and you beat the other person down. The same kind of go together. But the word puffed up is a, is a word that means to inflate. It's just, it's just that. It's, it's like uh, you would use it to inflate a, a wineskin in, in biblical times. You would inflate wineskin with air to, to test it for leaks, right? to see if it was going to hold. Uh, we inflate a balloon, right? So we don't use wineskins, but we you've seen balloons. You inflate a balloon. That's what it means. You're puffing yourself up, and and this word is used in a figurative sense to talk about that. You know, just puffing yourself, like you see the cartoons, the big head. Someone's walking around with this huge head. It looks ridiculous. Well, that's what it looks like to people that as they see us, as we if we're puffed up. Um, and, and you might think, well. How am I puffed up in pride? Well, there's, there's lots of different ways this can be applied. But I think one way that we need to, to think about that I think is very easy for us to be puffed up in pride is this. When we're in a conflict, it's very easy to assume the motives of the other person. You just got it nailed. You, you just like, oh man, I'm just, I, I know that they intended this to evil. I, I know they intended this to, to hurt me. And I, would, I just think that we need to back off that and realize that only God knows motives. Now, a person's actions, you can assume, you can say, uh, you can see a certain amount of motivations from their actions. And you can, you can go to them and say, hey, that looks like, that looks like a selfish behavior. Or, or, it looks, or it sounded like you were being unkind or unloving to your child or you know, you think of different examples, but there's so many sins of the heart that only God knows. Behavior somewhat manifests that, but you can be really wrong. And and I and I would say in this this regard that that a woman's intuition is very often right, right? and I'm thankful for that, but it's not infallible. So you, so women who have been given that intuition, you have to use it wisely. And recognize that really only God knows the heart. And so you might be right, but you need to go into the situation asking questions to make sure that you're right. Because you could be wrong. And if you go in with the wrong assumptions, assuming motives, right, then something only God knows. And that's that's really where the, the kind of the puffed up thinking. You you think that you know what God thinks. Well, no, you don't. Only God knows. And God knows the whole situation. You might only know part of it. So Think about that when, when you hit a conflict. Don't brag. Don't puff yourself up. Now, Romans 12.3 says, But through the grace given to me, I say, each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has alluded to each a measure of faith. So to, to brag and puff oneself up is to breed contention, to use a different analogy. You're breeding contention when you're puffed up and prideful in a conflict remember that god see how god sees you if you see yourself as god sees you 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 won't be puffed up right and you won't think proudly about yourself is remember to brag about yourself or to think or act in puffed up ways 
always makes the conflict worse, not better. Next, when facing conflict, you must walk in love so that you do not act unbecomingly. So this is the next negative quality that that describes what love is not. Love does not act unbecomingly. The phrase act unbecomingly is a translation of a single Greek word that, that means to act in defiance of social and moral standards. To act in defiance of social and moral standards with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. And thus to act unbecomingly means to act shamefully. And we know we're living in a culture where where just like shame, the shame factor is kind of going away almost completely. So, but but there's still that, particularly within the Christian community. You you have witnessed conflict, and maybe you were just the witness to conflict where you say, "Oh, that was so shameful how that person acted." You know, you've seen them, the the kids in the store. They're just like begging for candy or a toy. They just like begging, 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 and then the kids start screaming and. And the mom's like really embarrassed. And so rather than quietly taking the child out of the store and dealing with that child in a quiet and calm and collect fashion, away from the public eye, the mom gives that child a tongue lashing. Just lays into that child. Who looks more, more foolish, the child or the adult? The adult does. Because all the adults in the store have, have been there. We, you know, those that have kids, we know what that's like. But we also know that adults aren't supposed to act that way, especially Christians. Right? We must not act that way. We must not act in shameful and unbecoming ways. So the opposite of acting becoming, unbecomingly is to act becomingly. That is to act in a way that's, that's filled with grace instead of disgraced, filled with grace. So when you encounter a conflict, ask the Lord's help for you to respond in a way that is grace-filled and that is not shameful or embarrassing. Right? Sin is embarrassing. When we sin, it's embarrassing as Christians. Not only to us, to our families, to our church, but to God himself. But the Lord graciously has covered our sins. So he's not embarrassed to call us his children. Isn't that amazing? He's not embarrassed to call us his children, even though we don't always act like his children. So when you're facing conflict, you must don't act unbecomingly. And when you're facing conflict, the next one, you must walk in love so you don't seek your own will. When conflict strikes, love requires that you not seek your own will. Don't pursue your own agenda. Love does not put your own desire first. This is always true, but it's a very practical step in dealing with conflict and suppressing the fire of conflict. So when you're offended or hurt, your flesh wants to respond back, wants to retaliate. But God wants you to respond back with, with good. And he's, it's very similar to the, some of the other things we've already talked about, about being kind, about being patient. How do we avoid seeking to do our own will in a, in a conflict? By looking for what God wants to accomplish in the conflict. Look for God in the conflict. Remember I told you he's meticulously sovereign. Okay? So if there's a conflict, there's something God is going to do in your life or in the other person's life through that conflict. And we need to look for that and seek to, to cooperate with the will of God in, in that area. Okay? So look for him. 
conflicts are unpleasant, but God intends them for our good and the good of others. Right? Lots of times he has to he has to bring us to a certain situation where the character faults within us, our weaknesses are exposed. It's like when you um, when you fix your tea, you don't put tea in just a cold a cup of water. You put it in boiling water, and then the tea is infused and comes out into the water. It comes out of the bag and in, into the water. Well, well, conflict is like God turning up the temperature in our lives to expose character defaults, character uh, flaws within us that he wants to change. Sometimes those things can't change until they're exposed. Right? So God wants to deal with those things in our lives. It's a loving action of a uh, of a father in, in heaven who does love us. Well, what's another way we can avoid seeking our own will? Um, and that is by seeking the, the good of others. And what's, what is the best way for me to respond to them or you to respond to them in a conflict? And sometimes seeking the good of others requires that you set aside your rights, your, your prerogatives, your freedoms. And in, in most first century churches, disputes arose over issues of conscience and, and uh, opinions about lifestyle choices. For example, in Rome, the, the believers there, the Jewish and Christian Christian believers fought over regulations, food regulations. And they fought over observance of the holy days. Which ones should they observe? How should they observe it? Christians uh, today argue and divide over questions of like keeping the Sabbath or celebrating Christmas or drinking alcohol or enjoying certain types of entertainment. And you can fill in the blank. Right? These, these are the kind of things that um, we typically would have conflict over today. But the remedy for this is love. It's seeking the other person's good. Romans 14 deals with this, specifically Romans 14, 15. We get a warning there. He says, for if because of food your brother is grieved, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So we are to to live in a way where we're pursuing the good of the other person. So these conflicts that often come, the proverbial you know, change of carpets. We don't have carpeting here, so we don't have to worry about it. We don't even own this building, so we don't have to worry about it. We have no say in what the flooring is like. But you know, the proverbial, you know, what color is the carpet and the church has great conflict over this. Right? The easiest way to diffuse that is just do, do what's good for the other person. Stop thinking about your own preference and think about the preference of someone else. I'm sure a compromise can be reached out for everybody. but It's a, it's a silly example, but I'm sure... Churches have divided over something as ridiculous as that because the works of the flesh get in there and start casting fuel to the flames. And before you know it, the church is split. Maybe not in two, you know, two ways, maybe in three ways. It's, it's just really awful. So seek the other person's love. Another way that we can avoid seeking our own will in conflict is to do what 1 Peter 4, 8 says, and that is to let love cover uh, the offense. 1 Peter 4 8 commands us to stoke the fires of love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So using a slightly different analogy, but still a fire analogy, here's a good, fire is good if it's kept in the right place, if you're cooking with it or it's kept in the fire pit, it's a good thing, right? So that the heat right, is to be used to, to keep your love fervent for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, love can douse the flames of conflict before it gets out of control. So in, in 
walking with the Spirit, you can overlook sins. There are times when an offense or sin must not be covered by love. Right? This is this is it's not a command that to cover that love has to cover sin all the time. In fact, it shouldn't cover love shouldn't cover sin all the time. But there certainly are times when love should just completely cover the sin. And we have to use the word overlook, but I like I think it's profound how the scripture talks about covering their sin. It's it's the idea of like Jesus covering our sins with with his blood. They're dealt with, they're taken care of. It's not just simply overlooking in a worldly sense. Now, Alexander Strzok, in his, in his book, gives the following example, which I think is very helpful to us. He, said, he says this, after, what, after one Sunday morning service, I saw a man approaching me. The special music had been a little loud that morning, and from the look on his face, I knew what was coming. He angrily told me that I would face the judgment of Christ for allowing the young people to ruin his worship. For several minutes, he gave me a good, old-fashioned tongue lashing. He held nothing back. Then he took a deep breath, rested for a few seconds, and said calmly, Well, at least you are an open-minded person. He turned and walked away, and there has been no problem between us since. I never said a word. I knew that if I started to argue, the situation would have escalated. Surely the Holy Spirit controlled my emotions, allowing me to stay calm and to overlook this threatening talk and ungracious behavior. At times, such behavior has to be confronted and rebuked, but sometimes the best thing to do is to say nothing and to choose to overlook the person's fault. In this case, because I knew the person well, the wisest course of action was not to pursue the matter or demand that he apologize. The right course of action was to follow Peter's plea, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Loving this brother allowed me to understand his deeply felt perspective on worship and to bear with his character weaknesses. Love, and only love, covers a multitude of sins. That's a, it's a really a, a wonderful example on how the best course of action is sometimes to simply overlook it. Now, in the church, just as in the secular world, we're, we're going to have to deal with difficult people. Right? We're, and I'd say we're all difficult people at times. Right? We, we can be. Every person is sinful and imperfect. We all have uh, you know, our, our, our unique character flaws, our unique things that we, we like or that we dislike. The, if, if we do not bear with one another, above all, in love, or allow love to cover the offenses, we, we can't live in unity. We, we, we have so much sin, so much relational things, and if you choose to deal with every single thing, you're going to be in conflict resolution every day. And it's not healthy for you, and it's not healthy for the other person. And I'll prove it to you in this way. How often does God convict you of sin? On a regular basis, but does he do it every second of your life? Does he do it every hour of your life? Probably not. Do you sin every hour of your life? Right? Maybe not consciously. It's hard to know sometimes, right? My point is, you sin more than God corrects you. Right? He overlooks because he knows in the long run things are going to be dealt with. He's going to deal with them. He's going to deal with all of them. You're going to be totally transformed to the point you're not going to sin anymore in the future. But there are times to overlook. Now, at times... Love requires church discipline of sin. And we're going to talk about that in a different message. Uh, in order to preserve 
the unity of the, of the flock and in order to help that person with whatever they're dealing with, sometimes the right thing to do is to deal with it in church discipline. Not to overlook it, but to deal with it. And in some cases, to draw the attention of the church to what's going on so the church can collectively pray for that person and call them to repentance. So genuine love is exercised or needs to be exercised in, in great wisdom, wisdom from above. We need to know, like, is this time to overlook something? Or is it time to deal with it in church discipline? Is it time where I can go talk to them? Uh, Ken Sandy offers this helpful advice. He says, to truly overlook an offense means to deliberately decide not to talk about it, dwell on it, or let it grow into pent-up bitterness. If you cannot let go of an offense in this way, if it is too serious to overlook, or continues as part of a pattern in the other person's life, then you will need to go and talk to the other person about it in a loving and constructive manner. And that's really wise advice. So you can default to, I'm going to let love cover this, but if you find that you keep remembering you know, that offense or those hurtful words or the cold shoulder that you got just keeps coming back to your mind and you're struggling just to, just to put it behind you in the grace of God, then you've got to go talk to the person. You just need to go talk to them. Hey, don't go in an attack mode. You go in a, in a question mode. You go to resolve. You go with kindness. You go with, with patience. You go seeking the good of the other person. But, but you must go. You cannot. If it keeps coming back in your head, and that, that event, that offense, uh, whatever it is, if that keeps coming back and is impacting how you think about the other person, then you must go. You have no option. In order to preserve, preserve the unity of the body of Christ, you must go talk to that person and seek to resolve it. It's not an option. We'll, we'll get to that later in, in Matthew 18, but it, Matthew 18 is not an option. It's a command. So if you cannot overlook it in love for one reason or another, you must go to that person. And, and again, I'll, I will help provide some guidance on how we are to go to that person in a future message. Now, obviously, I haven't talked about all the 15 character qualities of, of love. Let me just mention these others just briefly, because these are important, too. We're just lacking a little bit of time to, to deal with them in depth. But when facing conflict, you must walk in love so that you're not provoked. Right? Isn't that what conflict does? It just provokes you, like in the flesh. Pokes you, pokes you. Right? Just elbow in the, in the side of the ribs. It's wanting you to react in a sinful way. In other words, retaliate. That's what we often see in conflict, right? One person hits another, and, and then that person wants to hit back. And sometimes that person wants to hit back twice as hard as the other person hit them, which is why... God told us not to seek revenge. I, I read this last week, but I just remind you, refreshing, that Romans, Romans 12 tells us this in, in verses 17 to 19. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, being at peace with all men, never taking revenge, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is writ written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To get it into your head that, that being provoked is a deed of the flesh. You're not to retaliate in actions or in words. And, and ideally, even work with that, with those retaliatory thoughts in your own head so that they're not even there. Confess them as sin and ask the Lord to help you think rightly. God does not want us to, res to respond with, uh, in provocation. Right? And when families know each other, 
when husbands know their wives, wives know their husbands, or siblings know each other, they really know what to say, don't they? To really just get you, because they know you. They, they know what will, like, just stir you up and make you mad, and you know all, you, you know each other's faults. You know each other's weaknesses. And so when you start going after and provoking, then it just escalates. It's like, uh, you know, it, it's like putting a, uh, some kind of firework on a fire. You know, you're just adding, you're not just adding fuel, you're, you're adding explosives to the fire when you start provoking one another. When facing conflict, you must walk in love so you don't take into account a wrong suffered. That's hard, isn't it? God's telling you, don't, don't be an accountant. Nothing against financial accountants. We're very thankful for them. But in the spiritual realm, you must not be an accountant. That's the term that's used here. You, you can't keep a little logbook. Oh, sin against me again. Sin against me again. Sin against me again. And you're just like tracking them. And eventually, you're either going to cut them off relationally totally. So that's the retreat method of dealing with conflict. Or you're going to explode one day. Right? And that's the other side of it, where you have dealing with conflict, is you just, you know, you give them a good tongue lashing or whatever whatever it is, which is also damaging the relationship. So we cannot take into account a wrong suffering. In other words, as those conflicts ha- come, right, you're working to try to resolve them as best you can. And even if you cannot resolve them, in your heart, you're working towards forgiveness. You are ready to forgive that person. You're ready to totally forgive. You can't totally forgive unless they seek forgiveness from you but in your heart you're ready you just you just want them to ask right you're not you're not like dwelling on the past hurts and stewing that up you you let it go by god's grace it's in the past you're not dwelling on it and it's not causing you to like stir up with bitterness next when facing a conflict you must walk in love so that rejoice with the truth and you don't rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoice in the truth and MacArthur uh, kind of notes that that re- the most common form of rejoicing in unrighteousness is the sin of gossip. He says this, Gossips would do little harm if they did not have so many eager listeners. This sin, which many Christians treat lightly, is wicked not only because it uncaringly reveals the weaknesses and sins of others and therefore hurts rather than helps them, but because the heart of gossip is rejoicing in evil. Think about that. The heart of gossip is rejoicing in evil. And, and he continues, he said, gossip that, that is true is still gossip. You know that? It, it doesn't have to be untrue to be gossip. It could be true, but if in your heart you're rejoicing about it, these are dainty morsels that the flesh loves to hear and loves to pass along. Right? It's just one of the ways that we can rejoice in unrighteousness. We're to rejoice in the truth. Rejoice when your brother is one. Rejoice when forgiveness is genuinely requested and freely given. Rejoice when broken relationships are restored. And lastly, when, when facing conflict, you must walk in love so that you bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Paul's using the all things there as as is a kind of in a in a expressive way in a hyperbole to make a point, he's adding on these qualities and he's saying all things that is all things acceptable to God. It's not literally all all things, but it, he's speaking here in hyperbole to emphasize his point. You bear all things, you believe all things. Um, you know, 
One commentator explains that bear basically means to cover or to support and therefore to protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure, ridicule, or harm. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even when a sin is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects, sorry, love protects, never protects sin, but is anxious to protect the sinner. We bear all things. We believe all things. That is, love is not is not suspicious or cynical. And when someone someone sins against you, you you resort to thinking the best of them of their motives. That is, when when some offense is given, think about the best possible motives for the person rather than the worst. You know, they don't respond to your text. You could say, you know, they probably just got busy or. You know, sometimes when you look at a text and you get another text and another text, you get busy and you forget about that text and it's probably just an oversight rather than they intentionally chose not to respond to you. Right? So that's, that's what we're talking about here. You're, you're believing the best of motives until proven otherwise. Right? There are some times where the, the motives of the other person are evil and you have to deal with that. But, but your default is to believe. Believe the best possible motives until you're proven wrong. Love hopes all things. Uh, love hopes because God is always at work. You know, hope is needed in conflict relation. There's a hope that, that through the power of God, this conflict can be resolved for his glory. So we come out stronger. And then through all conflict, you need to be able to endure. So Paul kind of kind of ends on this kind of same theme. He began with love talking about patience here. He says love endures. Right? When we have a conflict, we need endurance to do what is right and to see things resolved. So far as it depends upon us. Now, many in, in first Christian churches, as they were brought together, they're brought together from distinct and diverse social classes. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, rich, poor. All sorts of ethnicities were brought together in the local church. You had fastidious Jews. You had permissive Gentiles. And they were all to be together in the local church. Unity. The power of the Spirit is wonderful and He brings unity. So how could a congregation like that with such diversity have unity? It's only through the self-sacrificing love produced by the Holy Spirit. Which means if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't love like this. And, and so examine your own, your own life. Is there any evidence of Holy Spirit love, of patience, kindness right? that, that you see? Is, do, you, do you hope all things? Do you endure all things? If there's no evidence of that in your life, then you are not the Lord's child. The good news is if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, you can be his child today. Today can be the day of your salvation if you will call out to him, confess your sins to him, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And he will give you his spirit and the ability to walk in obedience to this kind of love. To practice this kind of love. This kind of love is what we must practice to resolve conflict biblically. And it is this love and only this love which is strong enough to hold together a congregation of dissimilar individuals. And, and the churches in the New Testament were very dissimilar. So if 
God can do that for them, then he can do that for us. Because we don't have that kind of uh, common commonalities that we have with one another. Right? The things we like or, or dislike. So beloved, as we wrap this up, just think about it. Don't be caught off guard. When you face conflict, if you react quickly and in the right way, you can suppress that little fire and not much damage is done. Right? You might just have ruined a meal. That's it. Easy. Throw it away. Start over. Right? But if you respond slowly or in the wrong ways, you're going to make that little fire right, huge. You're just going to cause more relational damage that you're going to have to clean up and deal with later. Right? And God wants you to walk in truth and obedience. Right? So, again, knowing how to safely put out a fire, right, you can deal with these things. And God wants you to know how to properly put out the fire of conflict with, with love. So seek to be a doer of the word of God. Apply these things. Right? So I know that you're going to have conflict this week, so just be prepared. Put on, resolve to put on love when that comes. Right? Kind, patience. Set your heart to do these things for the glory of God, for the good of your families, and for the good of our church family and for the glory of, of God himself. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are just thankful that you are patient and kind with us. And Lord God, I just ask that you would examine our hearts. You know where we're at today. You know our thoughts from afar. You know what we're going to say long before we say it. So let's work in our hearts, Lord God. Search us and know us. See those areas of our lives that lack conformity to Christ and we just ask that you would gently and lovingly deal with those. Help us, Lord God, to be people who love, whose commitment to love is based on your love for us. Help us to walk in love and to extinguish the, the early flames of conflict before they get too big. Help us to respond in ways that are just full of righteousness and holiness, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.